You're listening to The 66, and today we are starting a new book. We're starting Nehemiah. We're in the middle of our series on the restoration of Israel, and so far we've already covered Ezra, and in Ezra we saw the restoration of worship and the restoration of the law. Now we're getting into Nehemiah, and we're going to see the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. And if you've ever read Nehemiah, or probably the only thing you remember about Nehemiah uh, is the fact that the walls are rebuilt. I knew, before, or I know before I got into this study, pretty much the only thing I knew about Nehemiah or associated with it was the rebuilding of the walls. Um, actually, Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes right after Ezra, and Ezra and Nehemiah have several similarities, and in fact, in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, they're just one book. It's called Esdras. But uh, as we have them today, they're broken up, Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we're going to do today, we're going to start with chapter 1, and we're going to find two things. First, we're going to find a ruined city, and then we're going to find a ruined people. So let's get right into the text and outline chapter 1 for today. If you look in verses 1 through 3, you'll find out uh, exactly what Nehemiah finds out, is that the city of Jerusalem lies in shambles. It's ruined it's broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire, as you can read in verse 3. But let's go, uh, let's back up to verse 1 and 2 really quick. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. I don't know how to pronounce that. Do you know how to pronounce that? Chislev. Chislev? Okay. He's the back of the throat. Got it. It happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year. Thank you. Uh, that I was in Susa, the citadel. So a couple things here to note. Um, Chislev, as Brother Kaiser has pointed out to us, uh, this is the month, this is around December. So it's cold outside, just to give you a little bit of, of an idea of what's going on. December, 20th year there is of Artaxerxes. You can read in chapter 2 and verse 1, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, same year. We're talking about the ruler Artaxerxes. Now this is going to be about 12 or 14 years after the end of Ezra's book. So we said this comes right after Ezra, 12 or 14 years later, now you have Nehemiah. This comes 30 years after Esther. So at this point in history, Ezra and Esther, those events have already happened, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the final uh, the final thing we're going to look at chronologically. I guess right. we do so Esther. So we usually we study it, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther... But mm-hmm. historically, it's Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. No, mm-hmm. ah, I do that. I think I did that in a previous episode. Historically, mm-hmm. it is Esther, okay. Ezra, Nehemiah, right? Yeah, I yeah, believe so. That's what you just said. Esther's 30 years prior to this. Yeah. Esther takes place, a good way to remember that, Esther takes place with Xerxes. And then Artaxerxes yes. is the son of Xerxes. Xerxes was her husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was Artaxerxes her son? Probably not. I mean, yeah. it's an interesting thought. It could have been. Also, uh, if you were with us on. in our podcast on Ezra, this would fit between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. Mm-hmm. So there's another wrinkle in it. She doesn't... Esther the person comes before Ezra the person, but Esther the book is buried right in the middle mm-hmm. of the book of Ezra. Oh, yeah. And all this stuff, it's cool to see how it all fits together. And uh, hopefully, as we go through this series, you'll get a good idea of how that fits together. Uh, but also, you look, he says he's in Susa. Susa is a place where the Persian kings lived. Some people think they only lived there in the winter, which would line up with uh, what we have here being in the month of December. But either way, it's where the Persian kings lived. This is where Nehemiah is because, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, he is a very trusted member of the king's uh, cabinet, if you want to call it that, compare it to the presidential cabinet today. But um, then you can see in verse uh, 2 and 3 what happens. Uh, Nehemiah runs into his brother, uh, Hanani, and whether or not this is his blood brother or not doesn't really matter. But either way, um, he runs into him and I guess asks him, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? And they say to him in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what we can see from that verse and in the verses following in Nehemiah's prayer um, are that the people, you have now this ruined city, but you have a ruined people living in that city. They are in 
uh, great trouble and shame. And in Nehemiah's prayer, you find out why. is because they have forsaken God. They have forgotten God. They're not obeying God anymore. And so they've been brought to ruin. They were put in exile. And now they're in the situation they're in. They're, they're starting to come back. There's some of them that are back part of the temple or the temple's been rebuilt. Uh, but at this point, the city lies in ruin. And we'll talk a little more about that in the next section, how it got to be in ruin um, after Ezra's time. But uh, the absence of the walls of Jerusalem is a very significant problem for the Jews. Uh, the ruin of the city is directly representative of their own ruin in the presence of God. So in the first three verses, you have uh, the introduction, really. Here's Nehemiah. Here's the year. He finds out the city's ruined. And in verses 4 through 11, you find Nehemiah's reaction, and he is praying for the people. Uh, he honors God in verse 5. He confesses the sins of Israel in verses 6 and 7. He remembers God's covenant in verses 8 through 10, and he asks for help in verse 11. And there's a lot of stuff in here to dig into, and we're going to do that in the next section. But that's basically how chapter 1 outlines a ruined city and a ruined people. You know, you told you said at the beginning that uh, Nehemiah reminds you of, of the walls. Mm-hmm. If we're doing a key word for this book, it would be walls. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get that in my head. But unfortunately, I have something from my childhood that is always the first image okay. of, of Nehemiah whenever I hear the book of Nehemiah. And right. Maybe this podcast will help me eradicate that from my memory. Mm-hmm. And it's of a tiny little man. Because my dad, who is a preacher, mm-hmm. taught uh, me the book of Nehemiah when I was a kid. And because it was a kid's class, he had a little character on the handouts that he called Nehemiah. Oh, nice. So uh, I, I'm trying to get Nehemiah out and think of the walls, Yeah. but I don't know how successful I'm going to be at that. Awesome. Well, now Nehemiah is going to be in my head. All right, we have a lot of stuff to talk about in this second section where we kind of dig a little bit deeper into the text. The first thing we want to look at is Nehemiah himself. First of all, his name means the comfort of Yahweh. Uh, it's a compound word. The first part, uh, Nehem, comes from a Greek or Greek from a Hebrew word, Neham, which means comfort, and then you have Yah at the end of it from Yahweh. So it means comfort of God. Um, So he's got an interesting name to begin with. But if we look in verse 11, we didn't even mention this very much in our outlining section. But he says he's the cupbearer to the king. And we might read that and think, uh, big deal. This guy is the waiter for the king. He sits there and makes sure Mm -hmm. his glass is full. By the way, I love the way Nehemiah reads as compared to, uh, we just finished Ezra. Mm Mm-hmm. Ezra's a little like this, but especially compared to some of the other historical books of the Old Testament, Kings and Chronicles, this is in first person. Yeah. And just the way chapter one ends, it's almost you know like a novel or something. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You know, it mm-hmm. just kind of has a very narrative feel to it. You yeah. feel like you're settling in for a good story, which mm-hmm. it is. Oh yeah. And and it's a very different style of writing that that you see from what you are accustomed to seeing in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he uh, he makes this kind of point to close off that chapter, maybe kind of a way to get you interested in the next one too, much like a novel would do. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. And this cupbearer is not a guy that just keeps your cup full. He is an advisor to the king. He's a government official. You can contrast that to Ezra, who was a priest uh, in the previous book we looked at. But this is the guy, when we say cupbearer, we mean this is the guy who would taste the king's food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So Nehemiah would literally risk his life for the king at every single meal. Yeah, and I know people have a hard time connecting food taster with advisor. But mm-hmm. put yourself in those days in the king's court. The king, you know, can't... You know, he has to deal with a lot of diplomatic measures, 
secret treaties and all kinds of uh, state problems and things that all ears should not hear, top secret mm-hmm. stuff. At the same time, he is also eating several times a day, and it just became a matter of a convenience to make the guy who tasted his food also someone that he sought advice from mm-hmm. because he was there. The, the food taster is going to hear all this stuff because a lot of this business is transacted over meals. Yeah. So Nehemiah has to be there anyway for that. Why not mm-hmm. get somebody smart enough to do both? Anybody can taste food. Mm-hmm. Now, you get, it's got to be somebody who's expendable, though, because he might eat poison and die. Yeah. <laughs> but anybody can taste food, but only a few people can be an advisor to the king. So you get a smart mm-hmm. guy... Automatically, he's going to be able to be cupbearer. He's going to be able to, you know, taste food and tell whether or not it's poison. Mm-hmm. And he'll also be a, an important cabinet official who can give advice. Mm-hmm. That's how those two things are related. So much was transacted over meals that mm-hmm. you know it was necessary to get a confidant to serve in this rule, this role that mm-hmm. he's serving in. Yeah, and I like what you said, confidant. Because if I'm going to have somebody taste my food to make sure it's not poisoned, I'm going to make sure it's somebody I trust. Because Nehemiah is in a great position, if he wanted to, to have uh, Artaxerxes killed. Yeah. You know, if he just pretends like he takes a bite and someone says, oh yeah, this is good. Or he could be the one putting the poison in. Yeah. Or he could taste it and get the little vial, you know, you <laughs> see it in movies. Yeah. Put a little drop in there, a little hemlock or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pass it over to Artaxerxes. King's finish. Yep. So the, the bottom line, I guess, out of Nehemiah being the cupbearer is that he is a pretty important dude. Um, actually, his position was next to that of the crown prince himself. So he's really important. And he's important mm-hmm. enough in chapter 2 to get a personal favor from the king. And it's not like a personal favor like, hey, uh, can I take the royal chariot out for a date tonight? The favor he <laughs> asks is... Uh, I want to be the governor, basically, of this certain area. This province. Yeah, this The province. word province is used in verse 3, and we have to remember Persia is huge at this point. Mm-hmm. So big that Babylon becomes just a province of, of Persia, and we've talked a lot about the province of Babylonia, and he's talking about the province of Judea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of trust in between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah is what it looks like here. Uh, the next thing we want to look at is the walls. And they are down. They are destroyed by fire. Jerusalem is not in good shape. As we mentioned, it is a ruined city, which is our title for this episode. And the question comes in, you look in verse 4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now hold on just a second, Nehemiah. The walls have been torn down since Nebuchadnezzar came in with Babylon about 140 years ago. So the question comes in, at least for me, why is Nehemiah so, like, he's acting like he's just now heard the news about the city of Jerusalem being in ruins. And there's there's a couple different answers for this, and I'll I'll let you go go ahead with a the answer that you think, or what what you think might be going on here? Well, I, you know, one thing is this was a common way to express yourself in those days. Different culture, different reaction to things. This was a cultural reaction to bad news. Mm-hmm. You know, in America, we tend to try to contain those feelings, and then in other countries in Europe, they really try to. I know. In Russia, for example, is very rude. It's considered rude to show, uh, you know, a lot of happiness to mm. express yourself that way, to be expressive in any way. Mm. And uh, in this culture, you know, it's a culture of out outward mourning and weeping. And you know, he was raised in that. It was appropriate for men to cry mm-hmm. and fast and pray. I, you know, so he's very concerned about it. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, there's, there's a, well, I guess it looks to me like this could be a direct result. If you remember from Ezra chapter four, from our, from a previous episode, um, 
there's this problem that the Israelites face in verses 7 through 23. We have during the days of Artaxerxes, if you want to flip over to Ezra chapter 4 and look in verse 7, it says, In the days of Artaxerxes, all these people pretty much complain to Artaxerxes and say that uh, you can look in verse 11, you skip down to there, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Basically they say, Artaxerxes, don't let them build this city. And from this you can see the city is almost done. It's almost done uh, from what they say. They say they're rebuilding the walls. Um, they're rebuilding the, they are finishing the walls, actually, and repairing the foundations. So it's into this point of being finished. It's almost done. Um, and then Artaxerxes, in verse 17 of Ezra chapter 4, sends out an answer and basically says, yeah, tell them to stop. You can look in verse 21. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Now, keeping in mind that Artaxerxes sends out an order to stop the building, let's go back over to Nehemiah and look, kind of get ahead of ourselves and look in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 and verse 19, these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, come to Nehemiah and company who are rebuilding the city, and at this point, Nehemiah has not disclosed this information to the public. There's only a few people that know about Nehemiah's plan to rebuild the city. And these guys ask him, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, obviously, we know Nehemiah is not rebelling against the king. Well, because in chapter 2, Artaxerxes is going to give him permission to go and rebuild the city. So what could be happening here, we could have the city... All the way back from Ezra chapter 4, which you need to go back and listen to that episode to find out about the history here. We don't really have time to get into it. But in the days of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes orders the work to stop. Look in verse 23 of Ezra chapter 4. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read, they went in haste to Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. It could be that that force and power is how Jerusalem got to be broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. could be that they were almost finished building it, but then these guys come in by word of Artaxerxes and by force and power make them stop, and their force and power is burning down the gates. Well, it said that by force made them stop. Mm -hmm. It didn't say by force tore down the walls. Mm -hmm. So your main, your reason for... Reading it that way, though, is this surprise and alarm on Nehemiah's part in Nehemiah chapter 1 mm-hmm. seems strange, seeing how the walls were destroyed by the Babylonians mm-hmm. 140 years beforehand. Yeah. So he should have known that, right? Mm-hmm. But Nehemiah has never lived in Jerusalem. He's never visited there. Mm-hmm. This isn't, you know, like today where you can get a webcam aimed at wherever or you can look at Google Earth and get a blown up picture mm-hmm. of your homeland. I mean, this is in the days where people rarely left their hometown. They were born and they died in the same city. And mm-hmm. so maybe this is the first real description of Jerusalem he had ever heard. Yeah. Maybe this is the first one of his brothers that he had ever had, you know, contact with who had mm-hmm. been there. You know, yeah. that's very possible. And also I think another thing is Maybe he was under the impression that when Zerubbabel went there in 538, or no, 583, I got my numbers reversed, Mm -hmm. when when he went there, I'm still doing it wrong. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, 538, it's 538, I said it right the first time. When Zerubbabel went there, released from captivity in 538 B.C., now it's almost 100 years later. Mm Mm-hmm. Nehemiah may have thought, you know, with a hundred years, ninety years, yeah, I thought that the walls would have been rebuilt by now. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, we 
I see what you're saying is it sounds like he his shock is explained by a the walls had been rebuilt by Ezra and crew mm-hmm. or Zerubbabel and, and and crew and then um, they were destroyed by the enemies recently mm-hmm. and I think you know what we're looking at here is that the walls had been destroyed 140 years prior by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Mm-hmm. Then Zerubbabel came in in 538, 70 years after they had been destroyed, mm-hmm. and that was almost 100 years ago. And now Nehemiah is sitting here in 444, 445 BC, saying, Our people have been there almost 100 years. Why haven't they rebuilt the walls? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think we really know exactly what it is. The point is, the walls were down, yeah. the city was defenseless. Mm-hmm. And Nehemiah is very concerned about his homeland, his people, and his city, which represents his God, mm-hmm. and that that's why he's weeping. But I guess, I guess it's not the the sadness that perplexes us, but the surprise. Yeah, you know, this seems extreme for a guy that already knew this. So it seems like he's alarmed by it. He didn't know it. Why mm-hmm. didn't he know it? So yeah. I, I, neither of us really knows for sure. Mm-hmm. These are two reason two two ideas about it. Yeah. Yeah, there's like you said, we we can't really know for sure either way and the point here is not when or when or how were the walls broken down. And we could talk about this for our whole podcast until yeah. we're both blue in the face. But the point here is the fact that the walls just like you said, the walls are down. And that's the problem. Regardless mm-hmm. of how they got there, they are down. And that is what sparks this reaction from Nehemiah. And like you said about this emotion that he starts really just pouring out here when he finds out about this and whether he's known about it or not prior to it, it really doesn't matter because his reaction is the same here. Um, He weeps and he mourns for days. He doesn't eat. All he does is pray to God about the current situation. And there's a lot of things we can see from his prayer One thing I want to point out is that he calls God, in verse 5, Lord God of heaven. And he uses two different Hebrew words for God here. He uses the word Yahweh, and then he uses Elohim. So there's a a difference between these two words in Hebrew. Um, Elohim is usually used of God um, as a generic term, kind of like our term for God but with a lowercase g. And obviously when we refer to the one true God, we capitalize that g. Um, and that's our way to distinguish between which God we're talking about. If we're talking about the God of the Bible, we capitalize the g. Um, it's similar to that in Hebrew. Elohim itself could be used referred to God or to any other God. But God's personal name in the Old Testament is Yahweh. And this comes from Exodus chapter 3 and verses 13 through 15 where Moses asks God, he says, well, if I do go and try and free the your people, who should I tell them has sent me? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. He says, I am what I am. And this is, a, this is where we get, this is where the name Yahweh comes from. It's right there in Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. Um, so Nehemiah, what he's doing right here is he's honoring God with the greatest name that he knows. He's trying to, I guess, glorify God the best way he can. Look at what he says right after that. The great and awesome God. So you can see Nehemiah's view of God is just ridiculously high here. He gives him this great and powerful name. This name of Yahweh was something very powerful to invoke. The Jewish people would not even use that term outside of a worship service. They didn't believe that that name was something that should be as common as a term that's used in everyday language. So to call on the name of Yahweh is a big deal. It's something that requires you to be clean. You can't say it. You can't write it without first being clean. And so he's making a big deal here by appealing to this name. And then he says he's the great and awesome God. So there's this very high view he has of God right here in the text. And then also, if you keep looking on, uh, in that same verse, it says, He keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, if you've got a different translation, you might read right there, 
loving kindness or something kind of like that. Mercy. I think Mm -hmm. uh, King James always used the term mercy. Mm -hmm. And that comes from this Hebrew term that uh, we can't really pronounce. And Drew has found a pronunciation here on the internet that we're going to play for you. Let me get it going here. Strong's age, 2617. Chesed. There you go. Chesed. 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 That's the word we're looking at here. Can we just say chesed or loving kindness? Sure. Let's just say loving kindness. So this Hebrew term, loving kindness, um, is usually found with the Hebrew word for covenant. And if you look there in your English translation... What does it say? God keeps his covenant and steadfast love. So these things are closely related. It has to do with an an idea of an intense loyalty. So it's really with these two parties in the covenant. He is faithful. He is going to do what he said he's going to do. Uh, Nehemiah remembers the covenant here. And uh, this word for loving kindness is uh, used of a wife and a husband in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 13. Where Abraham says to Sarah, he's asking her, you know, to say that you're my sister, not my wife. He says, this is the kindness that you must do for me. That word kindness is this word uh, chesed, or loving kindness, that we uh, are looking at here. It's also used of a father and son in Genesis 47, 29, where uh, Israel is saying to Joseph, promise to deal kindly and truly with me. The deal kindly phrase there comes from this word for loving kindness. And then in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, we read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So this view of God that we have painted here by Nehemiah is a very high one. He's high, he's holy, he's great. And he is also intensely loyal to keep his end of a bargain, to keep his end of the covenant here. Interesting, you know, while we're talking about words, and it's interesting how words evolve, this word can also have a... Did you notice it it has a negative sense Mm. as well? Okay. It can mean um, reproach, uh, shame... And uh, it's used very rarely like that, but uh, it's used that way. For example, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 20, verse 17, when Moses is talking about a case, some kind of a um, a situation of incest, and he says this incest is a wicked thing. Hmm. And that's the same word, translated Hmm. love and kindness. So uh, it has to do with, it's a very passionate word. It's very strong Word, and contextually, it is usually positive. Mm-hmm. But mercy, maybe that's why they've wandered away from the the translation of mercy, because mm-hmm. today mercy, you think of it in the courts, and it's very it's a very legal concept. Uh, the courts will show mercy on this person. I mean, it does have a warm feel to it, but loving mm-hmm. kindness and steadfast love, that's a there's a lot more passion to that. Yeah. So I think that's embedded in this word, and it's a part of the God of the Old Testament that we often neglect. Mm-hmm. It, it's all through the Old Testament that God is full of love and kindness. There's a oh, psalm, yeah. and I wish I could remember it, where this word is used over and over again as a refrain. His steadfast love is mm-hmm. forever. Something like that. His steadfast love is forever. And uh, so this this is a very important Old Testament word that describes a God that is usually referred to as... The New Testament God. It's the same God from covenant to covenant, from uh, Old Testament to New Testament. Just um, different covenants uh, because everything centers on Jesus Christ. Yeah. And at this time, in Nehemiah's day, Jesus has not yet come into the world and died for the sins of mankind. So mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of God's righteousness and wrath but he's still the same loving God that we serve today in the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, the final thing that I kind of want to dig into here, and this might be more of an application than it is this uh, sort of digging deeper part we're in right here, uh, is God's willingness to listen. You can see from Nehemiah's prayer that he is confident 
that God is actually going to listen to him. Uh, you look in verse, look when he invokes the name of God. We already read verse 5. Now look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. And then look down in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And this man there, this man there of course, being Artaxerxes, but we'll get into more of what happens when he meets with Artaxerxes in our next episode. But the point here I want to make is that Nehemiah knows that God is going to listen. Nehemiah has this view of God as the highest and most powerful and most holy name that there could possibly ever be. He recognizes that God has this loving kindness. He is loyal to always fulfill what he promises within his covenants and that he knows that God is willing to listen. He's willing to do something. He's willing to act once his name is invoked. I'm going to pick up where you left off in the last one. I think this this is a very, you know, this this chapter is very practical. So a lot of our deeper stuff has also been applicable to our lives today. We're not going to have to work too hard in this particular episode to try to make this stuff come alive in our current day life because it's already there. And this prayer that you're reading that, that Nehemiah utters here is um, so important for us to study and learn from for our prayer lives today. People just um, are very confused about prayer nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people think that it doesn't count unless it's a really long prayer. Yeah. And you look here, and like Christ's model prayer, it's a very brief prayer. There's no reason to believe that there was a lot more said here than what is recorded. I believe this is the extent of the prayer. And uh, it can be read, you know, if we timed it, it's going to come in at about 15 seconds or so, 30 seconds mm-hmm. maybe. Very short prayer. Um, also, there is a posture that goes along with it. You know, the mourning, the fasting, the praying, uh, this, you know, was something that he felt very mm-hmm. much so. It wasn't just uh, hang your head down at the dinner table and repeat a rote prayer, and, and that's yeah. the kind of relationship you have with your God. No, this is a man who felt every word of this prayer, and that's something we've got to do too. But yeah. what I really want to emphasize for our apply section of the podcast is the confidence that you mentioned, the confidence in mm-hmm. his prayer. Uh, Nehemiah had no doubt that God loved him. You know, we talked about this word, kessid. He loved him. He had this loving kindness, this warm passion, this zeal for Nehemiah and for God's people. He had no doubt in his mind about this. And he had no doubt that he would hear him and grant him mercy. And he hasn't come up with a plan just yet. Or if he has, he's kept it to himself. We're going to see more of it in chapter 2. But for now, he knows that the place to start is prayer. Mm -hmm. Prayer is to be uttered with confidence, mm-hmm. and then it yields more confidence. Yeah. And, and of course, in order for that to happen, you have to actually believe in God. And I think there's a lot of people that try prayer before they try faith. But faith and prayer need to go together. First, got to believe that there's somebody on the other end of that prayer. Mm-hmm. And then you got to believe in the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I know what you're about to read. I, I cheated. I looked over there. <laughs> it's the verse I was going to go to in James. Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's a condition for prayer. So. Yeah, you you have to ask with confidence. Uh, James 1, uh, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord... 
or he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So praying without faith is, like you said, it doesn't make any sense to try prayer before you try faith. Because what we have here from James is that without faith, prayer does you no good. Yeah, yeah. And I like something that R.G. Lee said. He said, if you trust in administration, you will get what administration can do. If you trust in hard work, you will get what hard work can do. If you trust in your sparkling personality, you will get what personality can do. And if you trust in prayer, you will get what God can do. So mm-hmm. that's faith. You you don't just trust in prayer as some incantation or spell that you say a hundred times and it works. And there are some religious traditions who look at prayer that way, mm-hmm. Christian and non-Christian. Um, you know, it's not a meditation, although meditation is important of certain kinds. But it's not, you know, like the Eastern style of meditation where you say Om over and over again or you get your word for transcendental meditation and you repeat your mantra. It's not a mantra. It is a communication to a real person who loves you. And that has to be a confidence that you have. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, John said this is our confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we know that we will receive the things that we have requested of Him. That's First John 5. So, um, you know, there, is, there should be great confidence in prayer. And uh, that, that's a condition for prayer, but it's also a result from prayer. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the church would be a lot more confident in its mission if it prayed more. Oh, and yeah. I'm preaching to myself mm-hmm. as much as anybody else on that point. I think it's a very important point that comes out. As you look at Nehemiah here, doing the very first thing that anybody should do. And Nehemiah is often used as a as a guidebook for leaders. There's a lot of books on the market right now about leadership in the book of Nehemiah. Um, one that I've read is by Andy Stanley called Visioneering. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole thing's built on the book of Nehemiah. And it's interesting that, you know, the first thing that this great leader does who led God's people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in an unprecedented time with Mm -hmm. very little comparative, you know, compared to Persia or what Rome would have. You know, he had resources, but not much. The very first thing this guy does is fasts and prays. And uh, maybe we should talk about fasting a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I get questions a lot, and this is a practical side of things. You know, why don't Christians fast today? Yeah. And there are a lot of answers to that. Uh, one answer would be that, you know, Jesus said that uh, his disciples don't fast when the bridegroom is, is with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, Christianity is a time for celebration, and fasting often comes along with mourning and weeping. Yeah. But, you know, Christians are taught to mourn also. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn mm-hmm. for they shall be comforted. Uh, where t- James said, you know, in the... In, in the uh, last chapter of the book you read a moment ago to mourn and weep mm-hmm. um, you know he was talking about for sin and uh, so there is mourning involved in Christianity as much as joy mm-hmm. there is uh, persecution and all kinds of things uh, you know Jesus did teach against certain kinds of fasting though and it was the pharisaical fasting to be seen of men that he yeah. disdained and he did not emphasize fasting even though he himself did fast I'm thinking about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where he said, don't fast like the hypocrites. Yeah. You know, if you're fasting, nobody should know about it. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I wanted to get to here on fasting is, Nehemiah, I don't see this as fasting by choice. Mm -hmm. This is not fasting for fasting's sake. The main point here is not fasting in prayer, but a concern in prayer. Mm-hmm. Because he, he was not eating because he could not eat. And I have been there. I have mm-hmm. been, there have been times in my life where I've been so concerned or so saddened mm-hmm. or, you know, so anxious that I've not been able to eat. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that it has gone on for that long. But I've been there. I've felt that, and I've been with people who have felt that way. I've been with widows who lost their husband and dropped 20 pounds. Yeah. And you beg them to eat, and they say, I just can't eat. That's, mm-hmm. the, I would say, you may disagree with this, but that's 90% of the fasting that you read about in the Bible. 
Yeah. Oh, it's I not ritualistic that. fasting mm-hmm. in the Bible. That's what David does when his son is, or when the, the baby from his and uh, Bathsheba's adulterous relationship, when God's, or Nathan tells him, you're, you know, your kid's going to be struck dead mm-hmm. because of your sin. Yes. What does David do? He sits on, doesn't he uh, put on sackcloth and sit on ashes and yeah. and he fasts. And he fasts and fasts and fasts until he finds out that the child was, you know, he's mourning over his sin and everything, and he finds out the child was killed, and then he goes and he, you know, he cleans himself up and he gets over it. But and, his, and his servants were amazed. What are you, what are you doing? What, shouldn't you start fasting now? Yeah. And that's when he says, he cannot come to me, but I shall go to him. In other words, mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it but die. Yeah. And I'm not ready to die right now, so mm-hmm. I need to get back to business. I got, yeah. I got a kingdom to run. Mm-hmm. And... It was, uh, you know, that expresses some amazing control over one's uh, emotions. Oh, yeah. But I believe what we're reading here is that what we should emphasize is concern and prayer. And God's people should be concerned first and foremost over God's things. Mm-hmm. Taking this in a different direction, sometimes I don't understand God's people today and how they do not feel sorrow and pain and concern mm-hmm. when things happen in God's church that are terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's sin in God's church or when God's church is in decline or when the world seems to be overcoming mm-hmm. the church in certain ways. Yeah. Or or even just, you know, on a on a very small level when when the church plans, you know, Events and activities, and there's a lot of prayer about it, uh, encouraged by the elders and the preachers, and and you know the the people in the congregation. They you know go about their lives as if nothing really is going on. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't describe you know a lot. And I hope it doesn't describe the majority of Christians, but it is a very common attitude, an apathy. And Nehemiah is the opposite of apathy here. What came before the prayer was the concern. And then the prayer came, and then the confidence came, and then yeah. the leadership came. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't have many leaders is there's apathy instead of concern, and then mm-hmm. the concern doesn't lead to prayer if it's even there. It's just you know a, a general anxiety. Mm-hmm. When, when Here's another thought, and this is one of those things that comes out in our conversation that I would have mm-hmm. never thought of as just sitting here by myself. But, you know, anxiety is... Condemned in the New Testament, mm-hmm. but but what are we told to do to cure anxiety? We're told to pray. Mm-hmm. So maybe it works like this: concern without prayer leads to anxiety. Concern with prayer leads to confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think peace that's, that passes all understanding. Right. So you mm-hmm. know that lead, you know that's what Paul talks about in Philippians four six and yeah. seven. Yeah, I think that. I need to write that down. I don't have a pen. No, I'm gonna. That's fine. I'm gonna use I'm your gonna pen. Use I'll just quote you as saying that. Okay. I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. Uh, can I use this pen? What is yeah, this? Yeah, uh, it's not doesn't work very well. Okay, I think that's a great way to look at it. Saying, um, now let me get this right so I can write it down. Prayer, <laughs> prayer, or uh, anxiety without prayer leads. To, no, no, you said no, concern without prayer concern leads to anxiety without prayer. Results in anxiety. Alright. Semicolon. (laughs) Concern with prayer leads to confidence. Okay. And then with prayer. D R E W K I Z E R. Okay, got it. Yeah, Um, I I think that is really coming through here. You know, maybe if Nehemiah had not addressed this concern with in the fasting and all the mourning, if he had not addressed it with prayer he would have just been a ball of nerves. Yeah. He would not have been capable of doing what we're going to read about in chapter 2. And what mm-hmm. he does in chapter 2 is amazing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note, so we can bring it full circle, our title for this one is A Ruined City. What causes Nehemiah to be so upset? What causes this great level of concern? And what causes this great level of concern is that the people have broken their covenant with God. And this, the ruined city that we're talking about here, the walls being down, as we mentioned in our read section of this, the first section where we outlined the text, uh, the ruin of the city 
was directly representative of the ruin of the Jews in the presence of God. The walls were down because of the Jewish, uh, the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people. They sought after other gods. They forgot about the one true God. And so God gave them up to, to be conquered by other nations. They were conquered by other nations. And the walls being burnt down in Jerusalem was a painful reminder that God was, that, that they had abandoned God. God had not abandoned them. They had abandoned God. And so now their city lies in ruins. And so I guess the application for me is, what is the the state of God's people today? Like what, what things in our lives are we most concerned about that cause us, you know, to have these emotional prayers and these sorts of things? Well, for Nehemiah, what caused the most concern with him was the standing of the people of God in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And I think we do well to to follow that example. There, there, There is a lot wrapped up in that. His national identity as a Jew. He obviously mm-hmm. identified with the Jews even though he lived in Persia because in chapter 1 he says that one of his brothers, one of my brothers came to me. He wasn't talking about a Persian there. He was talking yeah. about a Jew. And this is, by the way, what is fascinating about the Jewish people. Their survival through the diaspora, mm-hmm. you know, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Then, you know, the defenses for his people, you know, mm-hmm. he was concerned about the city for that point. But I also see him concerned about Jerusalem as a symbol for God and yeah. his habitation. Symbols yeah. symbols are important. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, how do we apply that today? I think about the Lord's Supper. Now, if I'm sitting there, and, you know, Paul says if you eat or drink without discernment, without examining yourself, you, you eat or drink condemnation. Yeah. And in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, if I don't take the Lord's Supper seriously, and I, and I don't um, examine myself, I've got, I let my mind wander, I don't maybe um, take it as frequently as the Bible teaches us to take it on the first day of every week, 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 16, 1 and 2, if I don't take it on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, you know, on the Lord's day, if I don't take it with the body of believers, you know, as, as a communion, 1 Corinthians 10, mm-hmm. if I don't take it with the right emblems, the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread, Matthew 26, mm-hmm. if, I, if I don't, you know, take it and, and restore what it was in the beginning, then what am I doing? I'm showing a lack of respect for the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, which is the only reason I have any hope today. Mm-hmm. You know, if Nehemiah didn't care about that city and what it looked like, he didn't care that it was a humiliation to his people and to God, mm-hmm. then it would have been showing great disrespect for God and his dwelling place. Mm-hmm. The, the city of Jerusalem was a symbol for heaven, the new Jerusalem. And that's mm-hmm. why when you read Revelation 21 to 22... Sounds a lot like the city of Jerusalem, because yeah. Jerusalem was a symbol of that, and Hebrews uses it that way a lot of times. So uh, symbols are important, rituals are important, baptism is important mm-hmm. because it's not you know the water that's magical or anything like that. You know, it's an idea called baptismal regeneration, and I don't know anybody who believes that, but I know a lot mm-hmm. of people who like to accuse people of believing that. Yeah. But the blood of Jesus is what saves you, but baptism is the symbol of that, that God asks us to respect prior to our salvation. And that's what Romans 6, 3, and 4 is all about. So, you know, if we just toss that aside, because there's a lot of religious groups here in, in the world today who, you know, believe in salvation by faith alone, or, you know, that, that don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation... If we just decide to toss that aside for unity's sake, it'd be kind of like Nehemiah hearing about the walls and saying, eh, you know, yeah. it's, no, it's no big deal. I'm not going to worry about that. I got, I got poison to test. Yeah. You know, that, that's, he stopped his life over a symbol. And yeah. yes, it was defense. Yes, mm-hmm. it's his national identity. But I think there's more than that at play here. Oh, yeah. I think the bottom line is what it represents about God. 
I really do. Because you find later with the with the woman at the well in the Gospel of John, you know, she's talking about how the Jews worship God in Jerusalem and they worship God elsewhere. You know, that's where the presence of God was supposed to reside in the temple itself, and we covered that back in the the heart of worship. And I think that's our that was our second episode of mm-hmm. this podcast yeah. uh, back with Ezra. That's the heart of worship, and then Jerusalem proper is is still the symbol for where God is. And if that's conquered, then in the mind of a lot of these people at, at this time, because if there's a statue to a god and that statue crumbles. And the people are going to think, well, that God, there's nothing to that God because he let his statue crumble. Mm-hmm. And then so what do you think people are going to think about the city of Jerusalem? And yeah. I think that's where I think that's where Nehemiah's main reaction is. And you're right. I'm sure his nationality and the defense for the people in the city is caught up in that. But I think regardless, even if there was no one that needed to be protected or if, you know, whatever the situation might be, the fact that people... It's humiliating God Himself in the eyes of a lot of these people who didn't know any better. You know, I think that's the, the main reason for His concern. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we've got for Nehemiah chapter one. And again, you know, all these things came out that I had no idea were coming, <laughs> and so I and I enjoyed that, and I look forward to the rest of Nehemiah. In the meantime, if you want to send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com or me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. We have a Twitter feed now, The66Podcast. Did I get that right? Yes. At The66Podcast is our Twitter feed. And uh, you can look us up there and, and uh, we'll be putting information about new posts, our new podcasts when they come up on there up there or you can see us online at the66.net where you get all kinds of other information about the podcast and about what we're trying to do here. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll pick up with Nehemiah chapter 2 next week.